lot of cultures, particularly minoritized cultures, that sort of dance and movement has played a role in a lot of our cultures in many different ways. And so I think definitely we know now from the science about the benefits of movement and dance to our mental health and wellness. And so I think those are some of the things that culturally that many of our communities have utilized throughout centuries with not making that connection or even thinking about sort of what it meant to our mental health. So I appreciate it sort of when you mentioned that. Yeah, we, we call it now the somatic shake, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what we're doing is just dancing and jumping up and down. This is the Turning Points Podcast, a show about navigating mental health, sponsored by Point32 Health. I'm your host, Francis Lees. This week on the podcast, we are exploring cultural differences in therapy. How can our cultures uplift our spirits and benefit our mental health? What's preventing more therapists from various cultural backgrounds from joining the mental health field? And how do you find a therapist who understands and respects your culture when you're from a different community? I'm joined by a group of experts who provide culturally sensitive care across the country to unpack these questions and more. We're really excited to have this conversation. We have a a nice group today. Could you please just introduce yourself, your professional focus, and the communities you primarily serve? So let's start with Crystal. Hello, everyone. My name is Crystal Canari, pronouns she, hers. I work as the Deputy Director at the National Asian American Pacific Islander Mental Health Association, as well as Vice Chair of the Asian Mental Health Collective, both organizations working to destigmatize mental health in the Asian American Pacific Islander communities. I am Dr. Earl Turner. I'm a licensed psychologist and professor here in Los Angeles. I primarily serve the African American and Black community. I am the founder and executive director of Therapy for Black Kids, which provides mental health tech support and provides psychoeducational resources to parents. And also, I am a psychologist for a virtual practice called The Weight Room, which primarily serves Black and brown boys and men. Hi, my name is Dulce Orozco. I am a Latina immigrant therapist, and I work one-on-one mainly with women of color, most of them Latinas. I also work with groups of Latinx employees, which has been my passion for the past two plus years. Crystal Canara's work spans the country. Dr. Earl Turner is based in Los Angeles. Dulce Orozco is in our backyard of Massachusetts. They're not only diverse in their work, but also their cultural backgrounds and experiences. I was actually born and raised in Venezuela, and I came here when I was 17 years old. After I became a mom, I embraced my old identity being Latina and what it meant for me to be an immigrant. I am from the Philippines, having been born there, but then came here at an early age and over the years have learned more about my cultural identity as it has informed my own mental health. I grew up Christian Baptist specifically, and so I think that within our culture, spirituality and faith are oftentimes integral to how we think about our sort of well-being and mental health. So on this podcast, we love to talk about those aha moments where things just drastically change, just like that light bulb comes up for folks. So was there a turning point in your lives that helped you to navigate your mental health within your culture? And how did this sort of drive the work in the field of mental health? I've always wanted to work with children. And then I entered into college and started my prerequisites and all those courses that we need for pre-med majors. And I started working with the psychology professor at my university 
who was doing some research on ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I was working in a clinic where a lot of the families were Black and African-American. And what I noticed was that oftentimes some of the families were really hesitant or reluctant to utilize some of the strategies that were offered to them in the clinic. And so for me, it began to bring up ideas for me about sort of the representation within the field of mental health and how there is not a lot of Black or African-American providers and sort of what would that mean to, one, understanding some of the barriers to services for that population, but also how that might enhance their treatment. And so for me, it was like I could be another voice within this space to be able to sort of be a presence for different communities, but also be able to access and provide services to African-American and Black populations. And so that really has sort of shaped my career and, and the focus of all the work that I do today. So Dr. Turner, it's interesting you mentioned college because it also happened for me in college. I grew up in an area where I was predominantly black and white, not growing up in an area that had any Filipinos or Asian people that looked like me. And so college was the time where I went to the University of Maryland and they had an organization called the Filipino Cultural Association. So imagine like 50 to 100 Filipino students that would meet bi-weekly talking about their journeys as like second generation Filipinos. And when I was going through the organization over my four years there, found out that a lot of us were kind of keeping things in when it came to like our struggles. So my senior year was actually the time I was also pre-med thinking I was going to go into the medical field, but started thinking more and more about my experiences in that organization and how we were diving more into psychology, more into our cultural identity formation. And one thing we would do is we would hold a Philippine culture night every year to talk about our experiences. And that year, we're like, what if we focus on intergenerational conversations and our experiences as ourselves, as second generation college students, but also like, what if we were to think about the mental health experiences or just the overall experiences of our families, our parents, or our grandparents who immigrated here? And it landed me an internship at SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. So that became the turning point where I was like, I'm going to own my story. I'm going to own the experiences that I've been dealing with and continue to then share that knowledge and share that way of being, just like owning your story and all that I did to uplift my community. It's incredible how once you give voice to yourself, it gives people permission to give voice to themselves. So what about you, Dulcer? So the pandemic was very challenging for many of us, of course. But I think for me, it highlighted this guilt that has been with me being an immigrant. The situation in Venezuela, I don't know how much you know about the situation in Venezuela, but it's really, really bad, unfortunately. So that guilt has always been with me. And throughout the pandemic, I realized that I can be grateful and still one bigger and better things for me, for my daughters, for my family. So that was a turning point for me. And that's when I was a generalist. So I took everyone that was referred to me mainly because I speak Spanish and, and Portuguese and, you know, being bicultural. And so I had no filters. And that's when I said, what if I 
think about who do I really want to work with and what do I enjoy and, and where do I do my best work? And I realized that that was working with women of color, not just Latinas, but I feel that other women of color also gravitates to work with me mainly because of the lack of clinicians as well and because we might share similarities, right? And working with Latinx employees. And that has been an ongoing turning point that started or it intensified throughout the pandemic. While preparing for this roundtable, I reflected on the parts of my own culture that often reminded me of what mattered the most, reminding me that it's really not just about me, but about the village, about caring for one another. So before discussing the challenges and stigmas that can come with our cultures, I wanted to spotlight parts of our cultures that promote a healthy well-being. Are there traditions or cultural norms within your own culture that promotes mental health? Yeah, I would say that a lot of the cultural values I know of Philippine culture promote a sense of togetherness. Specifically, there are a couple of phrases in Tagalog, like kapwa. Kapwa means togetherness, shared self, and like, I am not me without you. And I think that idea that mental health can be promoted by people being connected and like supporting one another, I think is one thing that makes me feel like I am not alone. Another one is this idea of Pakikisama and Bayanihan. Bayanihan is the act of community building. When there would be floods or different natural disasters in the Philippines, people would literally help people move their houses with bamboo from one place to the next. Just the act again of people being together and helping people and during times of strife, like that also for me, like was a way of promoting just this collective healing through through it all. I love to think of those ideas when it comes to promoting mental health. Beautiful. Thank you, Crystal. What about you, Dr. Earl? Although not all Black people or all African-Americans or spiritual religious people, when we think about how we connect with biblical teachings or how we connect to our spirituality that has you know, historically been really helpful for us throughout centuries in terms of how we get through struggles and oppression and all of those types of things. And so I think that is an aspect that I try to integrate for my clients who identify as being religious and spiritual. What are the ways that those types of principles show up in their daily lives and how they cope with different types of struggles and anxiety and depression, et cetera? And so I think that sort of stands out for me in terms of thinking about how spirituality sort of centers itself around healing and wellness within the Black community. And I'm really glad you mentioned that, Dr. O. Over the years of my career, I feel like the missing piece is spirit. And I don't feel like we bridge enough of that and make connections and help people balance some of the things that don't have, quote unquote, theoretical answers. Right. So I appreciate that. One thing that that kind of like sticks out is how resourceful Latinos can be sometimes because of what has happened, right, in some of our countries. I remember once, this was years ago, I went back home for vacation and I was in a shopping mall and it started pouring. So this extremely sweet old gentleman came over and he was like, oh, I have an umbrella. Do you want me to walk you to your car? And I was like, oh, that would be great. So I think there's something there, that connection between being resourceful 
people and working with what you have and being creative and mental health. Also liking music and loving to dance and that sense of community and partying, which can also be taken to the extreme <laughs> at times. But I do think that it can be very connected to being well, right? To add what Dosi was saying about dancing, I think in a lot of cultures, particularly minoritized cultures that sort of dance and movement has played a role in a lot of our cultures in many different ways. And so I think definitely we know now from the science about the benefits of movement and dance to our mental health and wellness. And so I think those are some of the things that culturally that many of our communities have utilized throughout centuries with not making that connection or even thinking about sort of what it meant to our mental health. So I appreciate it sort of when you mentioned that. Yeah, we, we call it now the somatic shake, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what we're doing is just dancing and jumping up and down. You know, I'm also Haitian first generation. One of the things that we love to feed people. I remember growing up, we'd always open a door for somebody. We would just reach out and always feed people next door, like all those things. It's just community and food was a big thing for us. We didn't have the words. You know, my aunts didn't have the words, but they had the feeling. And I think that was enough, left an imprint for me. So let me ask all of y'all, why is it so important to find a therapist or a mental health professional who understands your culture and the nuances related to mental health? It seems to me that you can feel seen you can feel valued, right? In my experience, when working with the right therapist, you can put a light on, on all of that with love and with self-compassion. I often think about the metaphor of having an invisible backpack, right? Where you start putting things little or big. Some of them are heavier than others. And you carry that backpack. It's invisible. Nobody sees it. And you try to forget about it. But when working with the right therapist, you can shake the backpack and and unpack it and talked about all these things that you've tried to intentionally ignore or avoid. Dulce said it perfectly. I think one thing I'd, I'd love to add is when you find the right therapist, it's easier to unpack in ways where you feel validated. And thinking about minoritized communities, there's a lot to unpack and to have to go through it with someone. There is a sense of safety that is important to be felt. And when that is not felt, it is easy to not feel like you want to continue to unpacking the backpack. And so thinking about like Filipino culture, for example, the whole idea of colonial mentality, the impact of colonization in the Philippines and its way into the country now here as a diaspora community, at least just me personally speaking, going through therapy and, and whatnot, it takes much longer for me to explain to people that may not necessarily resonate with that right off the bat and understand it right away. Thank you, Crystal. Dr. Earl? Yeah, I love this question. And I appreciate the backpack analogy because I think for many communities that it can be really difficult to unpack all of these things that you're dealing with, the traumas, when you don't have a sort of safe environment. And so I think that one of the benefits of, you know, having a therapist who is from your culture and understand those things is that it does create some sense of safety because they may have some connection or similarities or understanding, you know, how you may have experienced some type of marginalization or oppression based upon your culture because there is some level of identification with you and the therapist. I also think that it matters because it's less likely that your therapist is going to engage in some type of microaggressive types of behaviors or that you're going to have to explain a lot about your history and some of those lived experiences that you have when you 
have a therapist who is not from your community or who has, has also not belonged to a community that has been marginalized, that you're more likely to either terminate earlier, drop out of treatment earlier. And I've had situations where I've had some clients talk about how they feel like they had to sort of explain too much about their history and about their sort of cultural experiences to their therapist. And that makes it sort of additional labor for them to be able to sort of do that. I love Dulce's backpack analogy. We can set the backpack down and unpack it with a therapist. But what happens when stigma encourages us to keep carrying that heavy, heavy backpack? Stigmas like therapy is a sign of weakness or therapies only for certain types of people ultimately harm people who need help the most. A lot of times there is some stigma within many communities and I think historically in the Black community that therapy and mental health has not been something that we sort of thought about as being useful for us. So I'm trying to to stay away from the negative side, right? Or like the stigma or you have to be crazy to go to therapy. So let's transition to what challenges hurt someone's ability to receive culturally sensitive care in the communities you serve? What gets in the way? I think right away financial costs to getting care, whether that be out of pocket or sometimes if they're out of network. I remember trying to connect someone to a therapist. They were hoping they would be Asian and they were in Arkansas. It was just hard to find someone that they thought would be able to support them. And so again, access to the workforce that they believe is to be culturally competent or a right fit for them, I think is another blockage. Stigma is a huge blockage to getting care within, I would say, particularly for Asian American Pacific Islander communities, but also other communities. What I've seen within Asian American Pacific Islander communities, usually it is the youth or the young adult that's often acted as a bridge for their families, maybe particularly immigrant families that are going to therapy for the first time, maybe the first one in their family. And so there's that barrier of like lack of education, but also just being the first and having to navigate that on their own and not knowing where to go. I definitely agree with all of the challenges that Crystal mentioned. I will label one of those that she mentioned as well in terms of, I think, just the capitalistic system that we have in America. I think we have to name it because I do think that it does add some additional challenges for people getting services, but also how it prevents practitioners sometimes from providing care who are culturally sensitive. So I know that things are changing slightly in terms of how we understand the ability to practice across state lines. But while I understand the need for safety and make sure that we're protecting the public, it also adds an additional barrier sometimes for people getting the care that they need when there is availability, but the person isn't physically located in their state. And so I think that's one of the challenges that oftentimes comes up. And then also for me, as someone who is involved heavily in the training of providers, both at the master's and at the doctoral level, I think one of the challenges is that it's just very difficult based on the curriculum to make sure that people have adequate amount of education and training around diversity, cultural, or culturally sensitivity. And so most of the time, I would say that programs probably have maybe one to two courses that students take that's related to cultural sensitivity. And oftentimes those are very theoretical courses. And so students then have challenges once they get into the field about practically how do you serve these different communities. And oftentimes there's additional amounts of training that's required to make sure that you learn these either culturally adapted interventions or that you know what are the specific steps that you need to do 
to make sure that you engage clients in sort of a culturally sensitive way. So I think that's a huge challenge that blocks people getting culturally sensitive care. I agree with all of that. And I would just add the not having enough providers, right? Not having enough providers. And one more thing is within the Latinx community, there's a lot of respect to everyone that is a figure in authority. And therapists can wear that hat or can be considered authority figures. So after someone has been on a waiting list for four months, five months, right? And they're assigned a therapist, even if it's not the right fit for them, it's really hard to say, you know, I don't think this is working. And I, I've seen that, you know, recently with my parents, I went with them to an appointment and the doctor was actually from Colombia. So the language was not an issue, but my dad kept apologizing because he was asking questions. Questions And I told him, the doctor is here to answer your questions, right? Let's not apologize. And I told the doctor, listen, I have a lot of questions and I'm not going to apologize for it because thank you, you're doing your job. But I think this is something that I've seen many, many times. So I feel that it just perpetuates this cycle that doesn't work. Yeah. What do you all think about why there's this lack of more professionals in this care? like in this industry, what is your opinion about what gets in the way of folks taking this path? I think one of them is the financial burden. And I'll speak to some of the research that I've done looking at some of the barriers for Black men entering into the profession. And one of those is that financial burden of, I can't work full-time, which might help me provide for myself as well as my family in order to go to school. And you have to take off that time because for most programs, you can't work full-time and go to school. Sometimes you can't even work part-time. And so I think that for many minoritized communities, that is a challenge to make that decision about, do I decide to go to school and get this degree and enter into this career path that I'm passionate about versus being able to say, I can't sufficiently provide for myself and my family for two to six years, depending on what type of program that you go to. And I think that for many people, they decide that it's more important for me to focus on sort of this more immediate need as opposed to taking time to, to work towards this particular goal in the long term. And then the other one, I think, with this recent affirmative action decision that we know that there are many qualified students that oftentimes are overlooked in many of these programs for a lot of different reasons. And so I think that also sort of gatekeeps the profession in terms of how we diversify individuals within the field as well. Whenever people ask me, how do I get into this field? Oftentimes the path they think of is, like, oh, I should go go back to school to be a, a social worker, to be a psychologist, a psychiatrist. And I'll be the first one to say that I'm, I'm one of few people that I know that is in this field, but not a licensed clinician. And I work in, in the nonprofit space, have worked more in the policy space. And because I recognize one, I didn't have the finances and abilities in my current life to go full-time and go to school, but I also recognize like the amount of advocacy being done to acknowledge the lack of data around like people of color and mental health or the research or even the pathways for peer support specialists to be more certified. So individuals with lived experience to be certified in ways that may not be as strenuous as going back for a master's are other possible pipelines for people to be in this field. And so I feel like it definitely stems off of that idea of there are a lot of 
places that make it difficult for people to commit that amount of time to go into the profession, but also the system as a whole, the mental health landscape of communities being able to even honor non-dominant ways of healing and, and being reimbursed for it or to have the resources to continue those types of um, healing practices, don't have that federal funding or that, that state funding to do so. So thank you so much for this lovely conversation. I think our listeners really got a well-rounded discussion about what to look for and how culture really plays a part in their decision-making to finding a therapist. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you're someone looking for a therapist who resonates with you, your particular background or identity, I hope you got a lot out of this episode. If you're struggling to find the right therapist, take a listen to our previous episode. It's a step-by-step guide to finding a therapist. Here are a few helpful takeaways from this week's experts. Lean into the parts of your community or identity that support your mental health. We mentioned dancing or the somatic shake, supporting neighbors during a time of need, And there's so many more ways we can find support in our own communities. There are very real barriers for therapists from marginalized communities to provide care. Be open to other avenues or pathways to mental health healing. Depending on your state, you may not have a licensed therapist who shares your same identity or background. Group therapy sessions or mental health coaches like myself are able to offer healing too. Thank you so very much for listening and spending time with us this week. Are you following Turning Points in your podcasting app? Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. Next week, we bust some myths about the baby blues and talk about postpartum mental health. The second my daughter was born, I had this wave of panic. And the first person I looked at was my mom. And I said, is she supposed to look that way? Immediately, I was like, something's wrong with my baby. Something is not right. And really, what I came to realize later was that something was not right with me. If you found this episode helpful or meaningful, please tell us. You can leave a review of the show like this one from a user named KBaker22. They write, it's refreshing and encouraging to hear burnout talked as something you can overcome, not something you have to suffer through. Thanks, KBaker22. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Ann Fuse, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. And special thanks to Point32 Health, the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media, and Hill Holiday. Point32 Health is committed to connecting the community to personalized solutions that empower healthier living. <laughs>